We're going to be in Judges chapter 3. Isn't that great? We're already to chapter 3. So um, we start at verse 7 after we pray. So let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, thank you for giving us a beautiful day. Thank you for uh, the delicious food that we've enjoyed. Use it to strengthen our bodies. Thank you for the privilege of studying your word and of fellowshipping with uh, folks that we we love and we like very much. And we're just thankful that um, we have this time in the middle of the week to come together and just to visit and catch up and and then to dig into your word for a few minutes. It's precious time to us, so I pray that you'll speak to our hearts. Thank you for each person here. Uh, Father, bless Ruth on her birthday. We uh, just think that's awesome, and we're happy for her. And so bless her, her family, and bless us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right. Um, chapter 3, verse 7. Israel, meet your judges. So now we really get into, um, you know, the, the list of judges. It really begins to roll at, beginning at this point. You probably have headings in your Bible and can even look ahead and see where we're going. But today we'll start with Othniel. Now, we've already seen him briefly, and I'll go over that again in a moment. But we're at chapter seven, 3, verse 7. So I'm going to read those verses, and then we'll start. Chapter 3, verse 7. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So right now you're seeing the cycle. The cycle lived out. You remember the cycle? You got your outline on that a few weeks ago? The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishthaim, king of Aram Naharim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. And when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, a judge, a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishthaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. So remember Othniel. If turn back a page or two in your Bible to chapter 1, verse 13, and you'll remember it says, Othniel, son of Kenaz, uh, Caleb's younger brother, took it, that is, took the, uh, uh, took the, took the city, Caleb had challenged him, so Caleb gave his daughter Oxa to him in, in marriage. And one day when she came to Othniel, he urged her to ask her father for a field. And when she got off her donkey, Caleb asked, what can I do for you? And she replied, do me a special favor. And she asked for springs of water, which, which Caleb gave to her. So we've already seen Othniel, but now we see him again and with uh, more Detail. So in, in this, uh, in this passage, it speaks in verse seven of, of forgetfulness. Forgetting made Israel vulnerable. And it will make us vulnerable too. Forgetting about the Lord will make us vulnerable and spiritually weak and open to just about anything. So forgetting made Israel vulnerable and they rebelled, the scripture says. They rebelled. Forgetting does not mean a memory problem. Now, don't read that as everybody in Israel had dementia. And so they, they forgot. That's not the case. It's not a memory problem. 
It's a doing and a not doing problem. It's a doing and a not doing problem. They failed to worship God. That's the not doing part. And they worshiped idols. That's the doing part. So they definitely had a doing and a not doing problem. So they worshiped Baal and the Asherahs. Remember the word Baal means Lord. In the Canaanite language, means Lord. And so they worship Baal as Lord and the Asherahs. The Asherah was a, a, a female fertility goddess. And the worship of Asherah was, uh, to put it bluntly, sex-focused. And so Israel has a doing problem in that they are worshiping idols, gods that don't even exist. And if you... I don't want to invite you to let your mind go crazy on this, so try not to even think about it. But with a sex-focused worship, you can you can imagine what might have gone on with that. So prostitution and, and a lot of other things. Now, just put that out of your mind. Pretend I didn't say it. Of course, that becomes the elephant in the room, right? They forgot God, and they are no longer controlled by what they knew. Now, isn't it amazing how quickly this happened? How quickly this happened. One generation, 40 years, and they have already forgotten God. He was not real to them. And when we say God's not real to someone, what we mean is God's not personal. God's not personal to them. So God was not personal to Israel, not because of God's decision, but because of Israel's decision. And I just want to say, if we don't guard our walk with Jesus, that can happen to us. And when we forget God, we become very vulnerable and we're capable of just about anything. And we don't want to be there. So God has become distant and unreal to Israel. Now, here are four things God gives us to help us remember. Okay, you may want to write these down. Here are four things that God gives us to help us remember. And the first is this. It's not a thing, but a person. It's the person of the Holy Spirit. As Christ followers, the Scripture tells us the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us at the moment of salvation... And the Holy Spirit helps us to remember. A job of the Holy Spirit is conviction. So when we sin and begin to feel badly about what we've done or said, that's the Holy Spirit prompting us and saying, you should not have said that, you should not have done that, you should not have thought that. Part of the job of the Holy Spirit is conviction. Part of the job of the Holy Spirit is encouragement. Part of the job of the Holy Spirit is comfort. And we're thankful for the guidance that is ours through the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. But one of the things God gives us to help us remember is the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit says, remember Jesus. Remember the Scripture. Remember what you are to do and what you're not to do. So the Holy Spirit helps us. A second thing God gives us to help us to remember is the Bible. You have it in your hand, most of you. have a Bible with you on the table today. 
And the Holy and the, and the Bible is given to us to help us remember. Now, um, who is the one who helps us interpret Scripture? So there we are back to the Holy Spirit again. The Holy Spirit enlightens us. The Holy Spirit reveals uh, what God wants to say to us in Scripture. So we have the Holy Spirit and we have the Bible, two things God gives us to help us remember. There's a third thing God gives us to help us to remember. This is something tangible, tactile that we do in church, and we use these words when we do it, in remembrance of me. So what am I talking about? Communion, the Lord's Supper. That is something very tangible that we touch and taste that God gives us to help us remember. Do this in remembrance of me. God knows we're forgetful, doesn't he? So he helps us. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us the Bible. He gives us the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And every time we celebrate, and by the way, we will celebrate not this Sunday but the next here, those of you who go to church here, that'll be, what is that, the 6th of October, I think? First Sunday in October, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. We'll hold a cup in our hands with juice in it that reminds us of the blood of Jesus. We'll take a little piece of bread that reminds us of the body of Christ. So we have these three things that God gives us to help us remember. The Holy Spirit, the Scripture, and the Lord's Supper. And then there's a fourth thing that the Lord gives us to help us remember. And guess what that is? That's the church. The fellowship of believers. We help each other remember Jesus. We encourage one another. We pray for one another. We fellowship with one another. And all of that is so important. I can't imagine living in isolation. But how often have you heard people say, I don't need the church. I can be a good Christian without the church. I'm going to say to that, You might be a Christian without the church, but you're not a good Christian without the church. Now, you say, well, what about shut-ins? They still have the church, praying for them, encouraging them. But I'm talking about people who just shun the church for one reason or another. I don't like the people there. They aren't nice to me. Uh, Whatever reason, whatever excuse we may have heard, we understand that God gives us four things to help us remember him. And those things are the Holy Spirit, the Bible, the Lord's Supper, and the church. Now, there are probably other things, but at least those four, okay? Now, when we go on to verse 8, we find anger and judgment. God is angry with Israel for what she's doing, and so he pronounces judgment upon them. God's anger rises, and he sends judgment. But let me ask you this. Can you see grace in the judgment? Yes, I'll answer that for you, yes. You can see grace in the judgment because if it were not for the judgment, Israel would never turn back to God. Let me give you a mini illustration of that. Your own children. When you punished your child or children, they did not enjoy it and you didn't either. You didn't either. You may have even said to them, this hurts me worse than it hurts you, and they never believed that. But it it really was true. Now, if you had never punished your child, if you had just said, oh, let him alone, let him do what he wants to do, let her do what she wants to do, 
he or she would have never repented, never turned back to God. What kind of parent would that be? We see plenty of them that do that. So God pronounces judgment on Israel. And in the middle of that judgment, we see his grace and his love because he knows without the judgment, they will never, they will never turn back to me. And so God's anger rises and he judges Israel and they saw, um, they saw their own spiritual slavery. And for eight years, eight years, they suffered under the rule of pagan, a pagan leader whose name, by the way, means doubly wicked. That's his name, doubly wicked. How would you like to be known as doubly wicked? That was his name. Now, uh, and by the way, what we do know of him, he, he lived up to that. He lived up to that name. This was hard. Don't don't look at this and say, well, you know, eight years, that's not very long. It was a time of suffering for Israel, really a time of suffering. So what happens then? Verse 9, they cry out. Now, that's man's contribution to his deliverance. He cries out or or he repents. Um, And then God does what only he can do, and that is in verses 9 and 10, he brings deliverance. And how does he do it? He raises up a man whose name is Othniel. And Othniel becomes the the redeemer, the rescuer, the judge for Israel. Now, when we look at Othniel, there there are no flaws exposed in him. Now, we're going to see some judges that got plenty of flaws. Remember Samson. But um, Othniel, there's, as far as, you know, I'm not saying he was perfect. We know he wasn't. But, but what we see of him is all positive, uh, like with Joshua. Everything we saw with Joshua was, was positive. So God empowers Othniel. Now, I want you to think for a moment about the difference between Old Testament and New Testament. In the Old Testament, God sent his spirit on a man. So God sent his spirit on Othniel. In the New Testament, God sends his spirit on whom? The church, all of us. Acts uh, 4.31, for example, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So in this instance in, in Judges, God sends his spirit upon a man named Othniel who... Um, rescues them by the power of God and did, did a great thing. As you see in verse, um, verse 10, he overpowered the, this wicked king of Aram who was uh, giving them grief, and that is followed then by, by peace. And isn't God good? They suffered for eight years, but God gave them peace for 40 in fact, for the duration of the life of Othniel. Then Othniel died. Um, so what does Israel do? Oh, I know we haven't read the next verse, but you know. What did Israel do? Yeah, she has peace for 40 years from self-inflicted oppression of idolatry. God is so good in raising up a man like Othniel 
and the people turning back to God. Now, we look at this text and we marvel at the grace of God. If you had been in charge, thank God you weren't. If I had been in charge, thank God I wasn't. Would you have given Israel 40 years of peace? Probably not. Probably not. But God did. In his grace and in his love, he gave Israel 40 years. Do you go through life assuming that you deserve all the blessings God pours out upon you? I hope not. Or do you go through life knowing that the blessings of God upon you are an incredible gift of his grace? I hope that's the way you live your life. I hope that's the way I live my life. Now, let's go on then to, uh, to verse 12 through 30. This has got to be one of the most fascinating stories in all of Scripture. I've entitled it, Lefty Meets Hefty. So if you know the story, you know what that means. His name is Ehud. Lefty Meets Hefty. So let's see what that is all about. Chapter 3, verse 12. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord, got, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. What city is that? Jericho. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Oh, this time it's a little longer. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, it's about 18 inches long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man, hefty. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, Leave us, and they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, right here, his right thigh. If he were right-handed, he would have reached here. He's left-handed, he reaches here. It's on the inside, not the outside. The outside would be easily discovered by a physical body search. Inside, maybe not. So he pulls that 18-inch sword from his right thigh, the inner part of his right thigh, and it says, Ehud reached with his left hand, he's a left-hander, drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Hope you're not weak of stomach today. Even the handle sank in after the blade, and I'm sorry, but i got to read the scripture. Here's what it says, and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed it over. Whoo, my word. 
Then Ehud went out to the porch, and he shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. And after he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. And there they saw their Lord fallen to the floor dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sirah. And when he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong, not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. God doubles it. Isn't God good? All right. Ehud, a little, a little a bit of a devious assassin, but God approves of him and what he's doing. Now, sometimes people look and say, well, this is a little disconcerting. Why would God... Uh, don't, don't be too disconcerted by this. Remember what we said about the ites, the most wicked people who ever walked the face of the earth. And God said, run them out, kill them all. Israel didn't do that. They're paying a price for that. But don't feel sorry for the ites. They were vile, filthy people. And so Ehud, bringing tribute, try to keep the king happy, Brings a tribute, and after Israel is done evil again, verse 12, Israel returns to the evil like a dog goes to his vomit. Israel just does it over and over and over again. They should have been grateful, but their gratitude is short-lived, and sin is an addiction with only one cure, and that cure is found in Christ. Now, in verses 12 through 14, there, there is judgment. They become slaves to Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. God strengthened Eglon. Did you notice that? God strengthened Eglon. Pagan, filthy, gross man leading a gross people. And God strengthens him. Sin weakens a nation. Are we listening? Sin weakens a nation. Sin weakened Israel. And God used the pagan to judge his people. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I think about that, I get a little bit of a shudder down my back. God's hand against you? If it is, your strength is irrelevant. It won't matter if you are the strongest nation on the face of the earth. If God's hand is against you, you will lose. It would serve us well to remember that or to discover that or to help folks wake up and discover that. So God used a pagan. So if our thought is, and we're not Israel, So I'm not trying to equate the U.S. to Israel, please, by any means. 
God's never said of us, you're my chosen people. But God has blessed us immensely. Um, Unlike any nation that I know anything about in all of history, God has blessed us. But at the same time, we can't say, well, well, God wouldn't use a pagan nation like China or Russia or pick your nation to judge us. I mean, they're filthy, vile, pagan people. Oh, you don't think so? Go back and read the scripture. Think about it again. Because if we continue in sin, then God's going to do what God is going to do. And it may be an ugly picture. We need revival. That's for sure. Well, the deliverer comes, Ehud. Uh, by the way, I think Israel had a, a prime minister named Ehud. Not too long ago. What was it? Ehud Barak. <laughs> How about that? Uh, Ehud, a few, uh, what, 20 years ago? So Ehud is a very popular name for, for Jewish boys. Ehud. And with good reason. I mean, this is a hero. So Israel cries out in verse 15, and they repent again, and God does it again. This time he uses Ehud, a lefty, a left-hander. Now, throughout the Bible, the right hand is pictured as good. See, over and over and over again. Most people are right-handed. And the symbol of power and authority is always the right hand, the right side, always. Power and authority. The Hebrew translation here literally says, as a left-hander, that Ehud was bound up or restricted in his right hand. So now we get a picture. This is more than just he's left-handed. He has a deformity in his right arm or hand. Now that explains why he likely was never searched before he came into the king. And if he was, they were searching over here, never thinking about over here. And it explains why Eglon was not afraid of Ehud and was willing to send out all his attendants so that he's left in the room one-on-one with Ehud. Now think about that. He's not afraid of him because he looks at him and he sees a man with... Something wrong with his right hand. I don't have anything to worry about with him. He can't hurt me. So he's got a message from from his God. So let's see what it is. Everybody leave. Leave me alone. I want to talk to I want to talk to Ehud. Well, in battle men fought with their right hands with a sword or a spear. So Ehud is perceived as being weak. Where normally he would have been strong, we, a man would have been strong, but God, but God has a plan. Life's not easy, uh, but if we are faithful in our hearts, he will bless, and in this moment, God empowers a man who apparently has some kind of handicap or deformity with his right arm. God empowers him, and he becomes a judge of Israel. Um, The sword would have been 18 inches long. 
would have been hidden. He brings a tribute to Eglon, the oppressor. Eglon is, I'll be kind, he's hefty. The tribute is presented. The delegation leaves. Ehud has a plan. It's predetermined. This was not a spur-of-the-moment thing. He comes back. After sending his companions away, he comes back by himself, such as his courage. He claims to have a secret message. Eglon sends everybody out of the room, sends away the secret service, so to speak, not afraid of this handicapped man. And Ehud approaches to deliver the message from God. Eglon is intrigued, so much so that he stands up, probably with the intention of leaning in to hear what Ehud has to say. And Ehud does him in, stabs him. And literally it says, if you translate this literally, it says the fat eats it. So the fat ate the sword, literally. And his bowels discharge, you, you get it. Okay, but you know, you get it. Now, there's a smell that goes with that. That's why his attendants assumed he was using the toilet. So they don't try to get into the room. Oh, yeah, okay, we know what's going on in there. But after an embarrassingly long time, they began to suspect something is wrong. They were probably calling out and the king wasn't saying anything. Ehud had already secured the room so they couldn't get in, uh, at least quickly. So finally somebody finds the key and they get in and, and he's pulled it off. He's escaped. He goes home. He gathers the men of Ephraim and he says, follow me. And they did. And they defeated Moab, killed 10,000 of them. My goodness, that's a crowd. Killed 10,000 of them. And Moab is made subject to Israel. What a reversal. And verse 30 says they had peace for 80 years. Isn't that one of the most fascinating stories in all of Scripture? Well, uh, next time we'll pick up with Shamgar. All we have is one verse right here on Shamgar. There's a lot there in one verse. So next time, Shamgar. And then who comes after Shamgar, ladies? Deborah. Yep, Deborah. And uh, I'm pretty excited about that. Not only do we read about Deborah and Barak, but also we read the song of Deborah in chapter 5. It's a beautiful song. So that's where we are. Hope you're not too grossed out by the thought of uh, Eglon. But I'm sure we'll get over it in a little while. Let's bow together. Father, thank you. We are amazed at what you do. We're amazed at your grace. We're amazed at your rescue of your people. We're amazed that you bless them with more years of peace than they had experienced in slavery. And Father, we are reminded of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that you pour out upon us. So bless us as we continue our study of Judges. Bless us now as we go to our homes or other places of responsibility. And we look forward to being back together in one week. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. God bless you. See you next time.